little mechanical or electrical device that you could just put an address in and it show you where to go. Uh, you had to physically go down to a building called AAA, and uh, you had to tell them where you were going, and then they would give you a series of maps. I know how old some of you are, because some of you are like, yeah, I know. Some of you are like, what are you talking about, right? And you'd get this series of maps, and basically what they were, they were called triptychs. And so what they would do is they'd cut out for you these little sections of a map, and they would put them all and bind them all together. And each little piece of map represented about 50 miles of driving time. And these were good not only to help you to find where it is that you wanted to go, but it also helped you to prepare for where you were ultimately going. Because on the triptychs, you could kind of tell what cities were larger than others because uh, by just looking at the name. If the name was small, small town. If the name was big, it's big town, right? And so you could, you could plan a little bit better about where you were going to go, where you might stop for the night, or where it might be the best place to be able to eat, depending on what the triptych was telling you. So the triptych, in all actuality, allowed you to become familiar with what you were about to see and experience, so that when you actually got there, that everything finally made sense. It wasn't unfamiliar to you. Well, whenever we begin uh, uh, to study a new book, we want to take a triptych approach to the book that we're ultimately studying. Uh, We don't want to just jump right into the book because oftentimes we're clearly confused on what it is that's being written and what it is that the author is really suggesting or what his point is. So the key is is to know as much about that book before you ever get into it before you ever begin to navigate through the scriptures. And one way to do that is to understand the background of the book, the background, to understand who is it that's writing this book? Uh, Who are they writing to? And and why in the world are they writing these things to begin with? What's the reason for them to write? And so the more that you understand those things, the the better we understand these things, the more we are able to make sense of what it is that we begin to study as we begin to work through the book. Does that make sense? So you're just not just going to it, just, just dry, not knowing anything. You want to be familiar with what it is that you are reading. And the only way to do that is learn about the background, the author, the people to whom they're writing, and the reasons why they're ultimately writing. And so that's what we want to do today. Now, I'm, I'm just going to tell you this. Half of you are going to be stone bored out of your mind. All right, for like the first like 15 minutes, because what I'm going to do is is to give you some of this background information. Uh, I can't start in Philippians one. I'm going to start all the way back in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16. Okay, uh, because that's really where we find about all of the goings on that lead up to the planting and the writing of this particular letter in the book of. The, uh, uh, Philippians. Now, my wife told me to make sure that I tell you this, and so you tell her that I said that I was going to say this. Two things she told me to do. Number one is to tell you, you need to pay attention to this, all right? That's a, she, I'm not speaking. She is, okay? You need to pay attention to this because these are the things many of you or some of you don't know, and it's the barrier that's keeping you from understanding what these books mean. Make sense? And number two, read the book, Well, you know where we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of Philippians, Lord willing, for the weeks and months to come, unless God has some other sovereign plan ahead of us. So read the book. The more that you read the book, the more familiar you'll be when we finally arrive at that passage, and the more understanding, and the more that the text of Scripture will make sense. Sound good? You got a beef? Take it up with her, all right? And so it's it's not me. So here's what we want to do. Let's... and instead of be reading at all of Acts chapter 16, all right, let me, let me sum up for you 
kind of what happened there. In, in Acts chapter 15, um, there is the Council of Jerusalem, okay? This is where all the big wig uh, spiritual leaders, church leaders get together, and they finally come to the determination and make an official statement that, hey, you don't have to be Jewish to be saved, to be born again. You don't have to convert to Judaism to be born uh, again. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the traditional Jewish laws. Or, uh, you don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is repent and believe in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so you don't have to become Jewish. And so at that point, Paul and Barnabas decide this is a great time for us to take a second missionary journey. But before they go, there's a falling out between the two of them. And, and the falling out really revolves around a personality, a guy by the name of John Mark. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. Paul has no need for John Mark. He can barely stomach the guy, at least at this point. He doesn't want him to come, so much so that they go their separate ways. So Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul picks up a man by the name of Silas. And so the whole point of Paul wanting to take this journey was to revisit uh, some of the churches that they had originally planted earlier on in the area of Asia. And so as they begin to journey, they come to a small town called Lystra, and they add to their team one more guy by the name of Timothy. And we're going to talk about him in just a couple minutes, but Timothy joins the gang, if you will. And so at this point, they begin to move more and more uh, towards Asia. But the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16 and verse 6 that as they did, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And we're not exactly sure what's happening, but somehow they're stopped from doing what it was that they had set out to originally do. Well, they begin to adjust their plans just a little bit. They come to a town called Bithynia, and there in Bithynia, again, the same thing happens. The Bible says the Spirit of, Je of Jesus did not allow them to go and to continue their work there that they had set out to do. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how this works or, or what's happening here. We don't know if God's working supernaturally, doing things, or if this is just them understanding that the providential events that are, are taking place, that this is a sure sign that God wants them to do something different than what they had ultimately planned on doing. And so they begin to kind of retreat, and they actually travel to a place called Troas. And it's there that they pick up the fourth member of the gang, and his name is Luke, Dr. Luke. And they pick up with him, and it's there that Paul has this famous vision, or at least one of them that's given of God. And, and there, is, there he is, and he has this vision. And in the vision, there's a man that is waving Paul on, and he's saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul, being the brilliant guy that he is, not dense like me, he puts the two things together. He sits there and says, look, God's closing these doors over here. Can't go that way. We've tried. But now we have this vision, this guy telling us to go somewhere where we haven't been to this point. So he and the gang get together. They travel two days to a place called Neapolis. They get to Neapolis. Then they begin to travel by foot nine miles to a city called Philippi. Now, it was Paul's custom that whenever he would come to a new city, wherever he hadn't preached the gospel before, that he would begin looking for a synagogue. And on the very first Sabbath of, uh, uh, that he was there, he would go to the synagogue and he would begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews there, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But when he gets there, he can't find a synagogue. And so he's looking everywhere, which tells us that there's probably a very small group of Jews in that area because it was customary for there to be a synagogue wherever there was at least 10, um, 10 young Jewish men of at least 18 years of age. So because there was no synagogue, we know that there was only a few, a handful of Jewish people within this 
community. And so they can't find the synagogue, so they begin to work through the city, and they come down by the riverside. And as they're down by the riverside, they meet these women who the Bible teaches us are God-fearers. Now, what that basically means is that they are not... They are not polytheist, which means that they don't worship many gods like the Romans and the Greeks. They are instead of monotheist. They believe in one God who rules over all, and they believed in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But while they were there, Paul comes. Paul begins to teach them. And there is a woman by the name of Lydia. She's the she sells. She says um, she sells. Purple, all right, uh, purple clothing, dyes, whatever it is, and this is what she does as a trade. She's a very affluent, very rich businesswoman, and he begins to share with her, and as he does, the Bible teaches us there in the Word of God that God opened up her heart, and not only her heart to believe and to be granted faith and salvation, but also her whole family comes to faith in Jesus Christ. This is a great way to plant a church, by the way. And so there they are, these people come to faith in Christ, but not everything is so good. There is this little annoying thing that happens, and it's that there is this demon-possessed slave girl that keeps showing up everywhere they are, that won't let them alone, and she keeps yelling out, these men are the servants of the Most High God who claim to you the way of salvation. Now, what she's saying is correct, but it just got on Paul's ever-loving nerve, okay? This, this, this demon wasn't trying to promote the ministry. He was trying to be an annoyance and deter the ministry. And so it's, it's like repetitive things can really drive you crazy, right? I mean, Repetitive things can really drive you crazy, right? Okay, I just want to make sure that, I, that, that you're with me. It's kind of like the constant clicking of a pen or the constant chomping of a gum. Uh, I threw Chris out of, my, uh, out of my car one day. I go, if you keep chomping on that gum, you're out. Pulled over, stopped, gave him the opportunity to leave if he wanted to. That's how loving I am. So Paul, I identify with him. He's tired of this woman so what he does, instead of throwing her out, he throws the demon out. He exercises the demon, and there goes the demon, and she's free. Now, this is wonderful for her, but most likely not for her owners because the owners of this slave girl are now out of money. They were using her to be able to tell the fortunes of people, and they were making a fortune off of it. And so now, no demon, no fortunes, and so now... Paul has now hurt them where it really counts in the wallet. And so what they do is they take these men and they bring them down to the magistrates, to the leaders of the town. And the leaders have them beaten and thrown into prison. Now, if I was in prison, I would be boohooing and so would you. And God, why are these bad things happening? But Paul and Silas, what do they do? They begin to pray and begin to worship God. And, and in the midst of it, this this earthquake occurs, right? I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? This earthquake occurs, all of the doors in the prison cells open up, and all the shackles fall off of Paul and all the other prisoners. Well, the jailer, who is responsible for keeping the prisoners in the jail, wakes up, sees the doors open, and thinks, come to the conclusion that they're all gone. He pulls out his sword, dagger, whatever it is, he's going to take his own life. And he wants to take his own life because if the Romans get a hold of him, it's going to be much worse. So he wants to end it here. But before he does, in the dark, he hears this voice. It's Paul. He says, we're all here. Don't worry. Don't harm yourself. And God, moments like that, by the way, have a tendency to change your life, yes? And at that particular moment, Paul calls out to him and he begins to share the gospel he comes to faith in Christ as well, as the scriptures say, his entire household. The next morning, what we find 
is that these magistrates, these leaders come and they find out that Paul and the rest are actually Roman citizens. And they find out that they have not gone according to Roman law and shown them due process of giving them a trial before their beating and their imprisonment. Now they just want this whole thing to be over and they beg them to leave the city. And they do, but not before they go by Lydia's house, our affluent seller of purple, who is there, and she is now entertaining, and she's supporting this church in her own house. And the Bible says they went there to encourage them. Now, that occurred in approximately A.D. 51. Ten years later, A.D. 61, ten years later, Paul is now in Rome. And Paul is under house arrest. He's not in some deep, dark dungeon. He's under house arrest. He is bound to a guard. He he can't go anywhere. He can't leave the house. But people are free to come and go. And he's got a great freedom to be able to even write. And so that's what he takes the opportunity to do. There, within that time, he writes four letters, letters that we have come to know as the prison epistles. And one of those letters is the book to Philippi, the one that we are about to study And I'm so excited about studying this particular apostle or this particular epistle because it's all positive. It's it's, it's all positive. It's unlike any of the, the books that he's written because in all the other books, he's constantly correcting people. He's constantly telling them, you need to stop doing this. This is not of God. What you need to be doing is this. You need to take off the old self. This is Colossians. You need to put on the new self. And he's constantly trying to deal with false teaching and and, and sin within the church. He doesn't do that here. In fact, we don't see really any correction at all through the entire book. All it's filled with is praise to God, thanksgiving to God, thanksgiving the people, and him just demonstrating his incredible affections that he has for this church that he had planted and been a part of 10 years before. And it's not as though Paul doesn't love all the other churches that he founded and were a part of, doesn't mean that, but this church had a special place in his heart. Here's why. Because they were a matured church. They were mature in their walk with God. They lived out. They lived in a manner, and here's this series kind of whole idea. They lived in a manner that was worthy of the gospel. That's what we mean when we talk about being matured in the faith. They submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They did what it was that God was calling them to do. They fled from sin, and they were all now, after 10 years, grown up. So over the next several weeks, that's what we're going to be looking. That's a big part of the foundation, but we're not quite there yet. What I want to do is I I, I want to draw your attention to the first part of Philippians in verse 1 there. And what we're going to see is Paul begins here um, in a very kind of traditional way, at least traditional to ancient times, and that is that he's more conventional. Back in ancient times, they were more conventional in how they would write a letter. If we were to write a letter to each other, I receive letters on occasion, and um, and, and here's how people do. They'll, They'll put my name, a huge body of information, and then they'll put their name at the end, Sometimes, depending on the huge body of information, maybe no name at the end, um, but you get my point, right? So they, they, they put your person's name, a whole bunch of information, their name. Well, back then, they kind of made a little bit more sense. They would begin with the person that was writing the letter, immediately followed by the person to whom they were writing, and then they would give this kind of brief address or this brief kind of like welcome or, 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 or kind of just, a, just an introduction, if you will, at this point. And so what we're going to do is he begins in a very ordinary way. But here's what I want you to understand this week and next week. But what he does is there's nothing ordinary about it. 
what he's going to do is we're going to see that this is no ordinary authors. This is no ordinary audience. And this is no ordinary initial address. So what we're going to do is we only have time for the first one. And everybody said, amen, oh, praise God, getting out early. No, just means we don't have enough time for the second and third. We'll cover that next week. But listen to this, okay? So what we find here is we want to look at this no ordinary authors. Remember the background? Who is it that's writing this book? Well, he says it right here. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't think I have to spend a whole lot of time on the Apostle Paul, do I? I think the majority of us know quite a bit about him. Uh, we, we know that, that Paul was a devout, well-educated, zealous Jew, so jealous, in fact, that he made a living of persecuting the early church, and it was before he came to faith in Christ. But then one day in, in, pers- in, in pursuing um, to, to, to really wreak havoc on more Christians on, his, on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ, check this out, Jesus Christ himself appears to him, knocking him to the ground and him coming to faith through that particular event. And from that event, everything changes. He goes from persecuting the church to now planting new churches and, and discipling new churches. He really becomes, the, the, apart from Christ, the second most influential character in all of the New Testament, apart from Jesus Christ. He, he becomes the greatest missionary who's ever lived, which is truly saying something. And he goes on to author 13 books of the New Testament that you and I have, more than any other author. Those are some impressive credentials, are they not? So this is no ordinary author, but he also mentions that there's somebody else with him. He mentions Timothy. Now, this is best to be understood that Timothy is with him when he's writing this, okay? And and, and that that Timothy, and and the reason that that's important is because he's not actually being the one who's writing this letter, Paul is. Now, we do believe that Timothy might have been physically writing it, But all the information is coming from the Holy Spirit and from Paul, from his mind, from his heart, and the move of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is the author, even though Timothy is with him and actually physically writing out the letter. Does that make sense? So the question is, then why would he put him in the beginning and introduction as an author? I think number one is because he's with him, but I think more importantly, it's because Timothy was with Paul at the very first time that they planted the church. The church knew him very well. Now, I mentioned this just a couple moments ago, but let me go back to Lystra just for a moment. When Paul and, and, uh, when Paul went to Lystra, they kept, people kept talking about this young man, a young man by the name of Timothy, and everybody knew who he was, and everybody thought that he was an extremely uh, uh, mature, uh, godly man, and so Paul meets him. He agrees, and he gives Timothy this opportunity to be able to go with him on this missionary journey, which is pretty impressive when Paul asks you to go. And he says, I would love to go. And he says, but there's one thing you have to do before you go. And he says, what is that? He goes, well, you have to be circumcised. Okay? You have to be circumcised. Now, understand without going through great detail, and I'm not going to. If you need more detail, see Chris and, and Dan. Um, but if, if, without going into great detail, This is before modern-day surgery, modern-day painkillers, modern-day whatever. He, as a man, now has to circumcise himself in order to go. Why is he being given this command? Well, it's because Timothy is actually, at least in the eyes of other Jewish people, Jewish. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek, which meant even though he was Jewish, he was raised up in a Greek 
family, a Greek pagan family, which means that they weren't circumcising their young men at the time. So in order for Paul to go, as Paul's going to go, he's got to go to the Jew first, then to the Greek. But if he goes to the Jews and Timothy's with him, and they find out that he's Jewish, has a Jewish mother, but he hasn't been circumcised, that is going to be a problem for people wanting to be able to hear what it is that Timothy has to say. There's no such thing as a Jew who is not closely connected with the idea of circumcision. So he chooses to be circumcised at this point. Now, here's what's amazing to me. Paul and Timothy knew very clearly, they knew with all their hearts that, that this was not essential for salvation. They knew that God wasn't going to love him. Remember, we just got done with the, with the Jerusalem council. He knew that he didn't have to do this to be saved. He knew that he, if he did this, God wasn't going to love him more. Or God just sits there and says, okay, now I'm going I'm to bless you more because of this. There's only one reason that he put himself through that personal torment. He was willing to put himself through that because of his love of seeing the gospel go to people that he did not know. He was willing to put up with a great deal of pain and anguish in service to others in order to propagate the gospel to see more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what Paul says about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. He says, For I have no one like him, for they all, see, he says, who, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, how does he know that? He knows that because look what he did just to be able to come and to be able to give the gospel to these people. He took on, he took on uh, circumcision at great uh, uh, detriment to his own self in order to be able to go and to serve them with the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is what we see in Timothy, the service in Timothy, but we see it with Paul as well. It's what they do. In fact, it's what they refer to themselves as. Notice, notice what it says in the next verse, or next part of the verse. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. See the word servants? You see that in the text? They could have introduced themselves in any manner that they wanted to. This is Paul, the greatest believer that ever lived. I mean, he might be a little full of himself, but he could have. Hey, this is Paul, the author of the books of the New Testament. Hey, this is Paul. This is the greatest missionary who ever lived. This is the man who, who, who planted all these churches. This is Timothy that was willing to be able to do this for himself for the sake of the gospel. But they don't do any of that. What do they do? What they want to be known for, what they want to be seen as is nothing more than doulos, that is servants and slaves of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what they understood. They understood that they were not their own, that they were bought with a price. That price was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that they had no rights to their own life, that their lives were God's, and that they were at the full disposition to do whatever it is that Jesus Christ would command them to do. Why? They were servants and slaves of Jesus Christ. This is what he wants you and I to know about himself. Why? Because this is what every believer should want people to know about us. This is not just Paul. This is not just Timothy. This is the goal for all believers. You could be known for a lot of things, for your teaching ability. You could be known for being a great parent. You could be known for, for, for being a great business person. But what we want to be known for more than anything is to be servants and slaves of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? But here's what I want you to know. It is never just this servant and slave with Jesus Christ. The way that we demonstrate we're servant and slaves of Jesus Christ is the same way that Paul and Timothy did. How did they do it? Through the serving of other people at great 
pains and sacrifice of ourself. Did you hear that? That's how we know that we're servants and slaves of Jesus Christ is because we become servants to other people and we're willing to be able to serve them at great personal expense to ourselves. That's the point here in this first section. It's, it's a section that I just couldn't seem to be able to get over. I couldn't move beyond. Now, here's what's crazy. In light of that, this is what God has called us to. There's an old adage that says that within a church, you've probably heard it if you've been in church in a while, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in church. Have you ever heard that? Some? Okay. Bad illustration? Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm seeing that way. People are like, maybe it's just Gil. I don't know. So uh, 20 do 80%. And then 20% of the people give financially 80% of what the church usually uses in propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that is both right and incredibly frightening. Incredibly frightening. Let's make sure that we're very clear on something here. To serve other people and to serve the body of Christ is not a suggestion. It is a direct command and will of God. God doesn't say this is something that you eventually do or this is something that you should be doing. This is something that every believer in Jesus Christ was saved to do. That is to be a servant of Jesus Christ by serving others at great expense to themselves. The Bible is very clear about this in the Word of God. Galatians 6.2, listen to this. Bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? Serving. You see somebody pulling something, it's heavy, you come along, hey, can I help you with that? That's bearing another people's burden, that's serving them at expense to yourself. And he goes on in Galatians 2 and says, and so fulfill the law of God. This is a command of God that we serve one another. We get into Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 13, which says that God has given the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and, and, and shepherds and teachers to, listen, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now note this, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, we are all called and equipped to serve the body of Christ, to build it up, to use our gifts, to use our abilities, serving each other at great expense to ourselves to build up this thing we call God's church. And he says, and when we do, this is what maturity in Christ looks like. It's the same idea within the context of Philippians. It's, it's you know, it's, it's hard. When I... When I look at this, I think to myself, and this is, this, is, this is why I struggled so much even early this morning of where to go on this passage, because I couldn't get past this point, because I kept thinking to myself as a pastor, God, if this is true, and it is clearly true in the word of God, do we all agree? We are called, commanded of God to be able to serve one another. Would, would, you, would you agree with that? And why is 80% of the people that gather together doing no serving to one another? No serving and no giving. Look, before we do this, this is not to be able to lay any guilt. If it was, if it was Chris who's got to organize people and get enough greeters and all that other kind of stuff, this would probably be one of those that I was trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just telling you why. We are created and called to be servants of God. Why are we, here's a question, why are we, they're running to servanthood. 
They're grasping for servanthood. They're wanting to be a servant above all else. And the modern day church is running from it as fast as we possibly can. Whenever there's a request that's made in a church or we find out with somebody else, we're just quickly like, we got to get out of here. I know, I've done that. Hey, we need this need. All right, guys, we got to get busy. All right. Yeah, you understand? Why are we running? Why are we doing that? I think a couple of reasons. Let, let me say this. I think, number one, that we have exchanged sound biblical doctrine and theology for modern day theological vernacular. It's, I know, most people are like, what in the world does that mean? All right. I think, uh, let, let me explain it for you. So instead of us serving each other because, because we know very clearly the word of God is teaching that, we find excuses around that. And we begin to use this religious jargon. Okay, here's what the religious jargon sounds like that now we're, we're, we're determining through what we say how we live. Here's where it is. Well, you know, I know you asked me to do this, but um, I'm not really called to that kind of ministry. I'm not really called to doing that type of thing. We hear this all the time. And it seems to be the really cruddy things that nobody seems to be called to, right? We need a diaper change. Sorry, not called to it. Not called to it. Hey, we got some sweeping to do. Sorry, not called. This not, it's not consistent with my spiritual gifts, right? And so what we do is, is, is people come, and when we, but listen, listen. When we say, well, that's just not my calling, what we're suggesting and what we're teaching is we're suggesting that God somehow provides specific secret callings to serve in certain capacities for each one of us individually. I believe that's unbiblical. I do. I mean, how do you, what do you even do? It's like you don't even know what to do with that anymore. You sit there and say, hey, brother, we'd really like you to be able to come and serve. I'm sorry, that's not my calling. All of a sudden, it spiritualizes your disobedience not to do anything at all, Right? And all of a sudden, the person is just like, and it sounds spiritual. You don't even know how to respond to somebody like that. Are, are, you, are you sensing me? I don't, I don't even know. To, okay, let me give you another example. It'd be like this. Another bit of this common vernacular, modern-day theological vernacular that we use, instead of using the Word of God to dictate how we live, is this. We'll say things like, well, hey, man, why did you do that? Well, because God told me. Another bit of really biblical, unbiblical verbiage that we use all the time, and what you're doing is it's like nailing jello to a, a wall. You say, well, what do you mean? But you did something that's inconsistent with the scriptures. Yeah, but God told me. And when somebody says, God told me, how do you defend that? I've had people say, God told me to get up and speak on Sunday morning. God did not tell you that. I'm, I'm telling you. And if he did tell you that, he better tell me. He better tell me, right? Do you, do you see that? And it sounds so spiritual, Why'd you go and get that tattoo of, you know, 777 on your forehead? God hold me, all right? And you're like, okay, all right? I, I don't, you don't even know what to do with it. Do you see that? Now, now, follow me just really carefully. So when we use that idea as, hey, I'm doing this, oftentimes when we say God told me, we are trying to defend our actions, which are clearly commanded against in the word of God. When we say things like, it's not my calling, we are trying to defend our disobedience to what the word of God is clearly calling us to do. You see the distinction between those? And so there's, there's many of these, and we use this jargon. Uh, another, another bit of jargon that we often have is, look, me growing up, I was so confused. What is this calling, this calling, this calling? Every, it seems like I think the reason 80% of the people do very little is they're waiting on the call. Just waiting on the call. What are you doing? I'm just sitting back. I don't know what to do. What do you feel like? I feel like I need to be serving. Well, why don't you do something? I'm waiting on the call. And it's so, do you see this mysterious thing? I think what God's just saying is, grab a broom. 
You see a need, go and meet the need, all right? Do what it is that you need to do. Let me give you another one of these uh, kind of things that we use, um, another one of these kind of modern kind of vernaculars that we use. He says, well, you know what? I would serve Mike, but I just don't have enough time. This is one of the biggest ones we use. I just don't have enough time. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to be able to do it. And again, when somebody says that, how do you respond? You almost feel like spiritually they've given you a good spiritual answer not to do what it is that God has ultimately called them to do. I just don't have enough time. FYI, you not having enough time is not a good excuse for not doing what God clearly tells you to do in the word of God. And you said, there's a, but what do I do? I don't have enough time. Okay, so let, let me lay this out for you. I think God is a good God, do you? And I don't think God is the kind of God that is going to ask us to do something that he is not going to equip us to be able to do or be able to give what we need to be able to accomplish it. And what we're saying is we don't have enough hours and days to do what it is that God is commanding me to do. I'm sorry, I can't serve. Even though the God Bible says clearly to serve each other, I can't do it. I get a buy because I am really, really, really busy. Well, here's what I believe. I believe that God understands the concept of time. I believe he understands that there are 24 hours in a day, that there are 60 minutes within every hour, that there is 60 seconds within every minute. He knows that, and here's why he knows it, because he made it. He made it. He has a good understanding of how time works. Let me, let me explain this to you. When you and I find ourselves saying, I don't have enough time to do the very clear will of God that is laid out in the word of God, then the only answer is, is because I'm spending more time doing the things that God is not commanding me to do. Therefore, I don't have time to do the things that God has called me to do. It's just not an excuse. Let me, let me, get, let me free you up. This was so freeing to me. I was going around years just wondering about this. Man, can I do this? Am I gonna get the call? What if I'm not called? Have, has anybody ever dealt with, what about the call of God? Maybe you're going through ministry. Ryan, maybe I don't know if you're, dude, that's the most confusing thing to me. It's, it's like, hey, but are you called? What, what is that? I don't even know what that means. And finally, I had a professor come up to me and says, hey, here's the good thing about God. I'm going to say it to you. God is willing to take volunteers. He's willing to take volunteers. Really? Yes. I had a guy that almost didn't make it to the mission board because they go, can you share about our calling? And he says, well, God said to go, and I figured if I volunteer, maybe he'll accept me. And they're like, that's the most honest answer we've ever heard. Thank you very much. Come on in, Right? And that's it. He takes volunteers for us to be able to come and do what it is that God has called us to do. I think, I think that there are some of you that still aren't convinced. So let me give you one more illustration as we, as we kind of pull all this together. There's a story. Just open up for a second to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. You don't even have to keep your finger in Philippians, all right? We're done there. Just go over to, to, to the next thing, John chapter 13. And as you're over there, let me just set the story up. This is the night before Jesus goes and gives his life on the cross. By the way, what is Jesus doing when he dies for us on the cross? He is serving us, yes? And so in the night where he's doing the Lord's Supper with them, taking the bread, taking the drink, then what does Jesus do? He, unexpectedly, he gets down on his knees, he gets a basin of water, he gets towels. And what does he do, church? You know this. He begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, we know all that, but I don't think we know the full context and significance of this passage. This is, this is what Jesus says. He says, the Bible says, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and he summoned his place, he resumed his place, sorry, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? 
he really wants to make sure they, they, they grab this. He wants to make sure that you grab this. And what he goes on to say is this. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And at that point, I think we're good. I think we're like, that's right. I mean, he's serving. So we need to be serving. Is Jesus going to serve? He's greater than us. Our servants, we need to be serving. Jesus, we need to be doing the same thing. But I think we missed something in this. He, he goes on and he says, he goes, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you when you do them. Okay, so we get it, all right? He, he's, he's washing feet. We know that's symbolic to be able to serve one another. But here's what it is. It's we're willing to serve with no parameters. Nobody in the room wanted to wash anyone's feet. It's the dirtiest, rottenest job you can have that was customized expressly for those that have no choice, those that were servants and slaves within the household. Now stop and think. If Jesus just wanted to give us an analogy, he could have used anything. He could have said, hey, man, I got these matzo balls that I cooked up for y'all. Here we go. Y'all come in. Hey, man. You know, Jesus sitting there, and he's cooking up for everybody. He could have served him in that way. He could have served him by maybe, you know, pouring more drinks around the table and, you know, kind of doing whatever. Instead, he takes the job that nobody wants. So he's not just calling us to be able to serve, which we all get it clearly within the word of God. He's saying Get rid of all of your different parameters and serve where there's a need and be willing to do what nobody else is willing and wanting to do. That's what service looks like. Our problem is we get the service part, but we've got all these different barriers behind it. I mean, sitting down with somebody going, hey, brother, would you mind you know, sharing and, and maybe discipling somebody else? Yeah, I'm willing to be able to do that, but let me give you the list. <laughs> of things that I'm not willing to be able to do. And you sit there and go, well, brother, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What we need and what we need more of in our homes, our church, places of work, so we need people like Christ. We need people like Paul. We need people like Timothy saying, I know that God has called me to serve and to truly serve as Christ served means that it is going to cost me greatly. And I will be willing to do what nobody else is willing to do. And they run for it. It's an amazing aspect for me. Why is it then that they are running towards servitude? I think the answer is that is really found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it's the only other time that this word doulos, servant and slave, is used again. And it says this, it says, but made, speaking of Jesus, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of the servant. I believe that the reason that Paul and Timothy wanted to be acknowledged as servants and be servants is because they understood, listen to me, they were never more like Christ than when they were serving. And they were never more unlike Christ when they were not. 
I, I, I just want to say this from the beginning. This is not one of those. Do you remember growing up and the pastor was mad and he preached angry? Because it was like they had an event and nobody showed up and then he just sticks it to you on Sunday. You, you guys know what? Nobody, nobody knows that, all right? Well, when I first got here, I used to do that, all right? So uh, uh, and then, you know, God's grace has worked in me. But I mean, literally, I mean, you feel that is not this message at all, at all. Again, Chris might be a little bit cantankerous when you don't show up to be able to serve. We get that. But what I am trying to say is this, is a lot of that serving, and, and be careful with this. Yes, you are to be serving your body. I know that many of you serve other believers in Jesus Christ, and that's wonderful. And at the same time, it's not supposed to be always this unbelievably organized structure where you sit there and we're all just come around and go, where can I serve? And you move over, and it's so annoying because if all of you are like, I'm ready to serve, here's usually what happens. The question is, if you say that you're willing to serve today, does your willing to serve outlast your guilt or excitement to serve today? That's, that's the question. Because all the time, we'll say, hey, man, we really need somebody to be served. I'll do it. Three weeks later, you know, I really kind of thought about what you were asking me about, and really I thought about it a little bit more, and I realized that I just can't do it, okay? All right, that's, that's normally how it goes. And some of you are laughing because you're like, I did that. All right, and we understand that. But, but, but what, what I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm not trying to guilt you is what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to get you to sit there and go, oh, no, we're doing nothing, hurry up and get over. What I'm trying to say is this is who God has called you to be. God has called you as a follower of Jesus Christ to be first and foremost a servant who is willing to do what nobody else is willing to do at great personal expense to yourself. That's the view of a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm reading a book right now on leadership, and, um, and the author, Craig Hamilton, says this. He says, you want to be a disciple of Jesus? He says, that's a great thing. You want to be a leader? Good. You want to be a great leader? You want to be the greatest? That's good, too. Be a servant. Be the greatest servant. Serve everyone you can. That's what it looks like to be a mature believer in Jesus Christ. Again, it may not always be I have at this particular time to serve at this particular place, but what it is for sure is sometimes where you're working and it's much more fluid and organic. It's that you're within other believers in Jesus Christ and you're just seeing needs and you're saying, there, let's go meet this need. Let's go do it. And I promise you, here's, here's what's crazy about Paul and the rest, is you and I sit there and go, oh, man, but consider the cost. I don't know. It's going to cause me to lose sleep. Paul and Timothy sat there and said, give it to us. The expense is what we're seeking after. We want to be like Christ. Praise God that Jesus Christ gave us the example of dying on the cross, what nobody else wanted to do for us, and he was willing to do it, to become himself, to become a servant for you and I. Let's pray. Jesus, I love you and I praise you.